PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Therapy Source. Therapy Source is a therapy practice management software solution used by the majority of all large physical therapy chains in the U.S. It is a scalable solution for small clinics with integrated electronic medical records, scheduling, registration, clinical documentation, billing, and revenue cycle management. For more information, visit www.sourcemed.net. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for April 2011. This month's research reports focus on Agility and Perturbation Training Techniques in Exercise Therapy, Relationships Among Sitting Posture, Biopsychosocial Factors, and Back Pain, Physical Therapy for Chronic Low Back Pain in North Carolina, Evaluation of a Treatment-Based Classification Algorithm for Low Back Pain, Predictors of Response to Physical Therapy in Patients with Primary Hip Osteoarthritis, Fear Avoidance Beliefs and Low Back Pain, Sensory Motor Retraining for Low Back Pain, sit-to-stand movement after revision hip surgery, reliability of outcome measures for people with lower limb amputations, the treadmill six-minute walk test after cardiac surgery, and abbreviated versions of the gross motor function measure. Invited commentaries, e-letters to the editor, online-only features to articles, videos, bottom-line clinical summaries, and podcasts are all available at ptjournal.apta.org. First this month, Agility and Perturbation Training Techniques in Exercise Therapy for Reducing Pain and Improving Function in People with Knee Osteoarthritis, a Randomized Clinical Trial, by Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald, Dr. Sarah Piva, Dr. Alexandra Gill, Dr. Stephen Wisniewski, Dr. Chester Otis, and Dr. James Ergang. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Impairment-based exercise programs have yielded only small to moderate benefits in reducing pain and improving function in people with knee osteoarthritis. It has previously been proposed that adding agility and perturbation training to exercise programs for people with knee osteoarthritis may improve treatment effects for pain and function. The purpose of this single-blinded randomized controlled trial was to examine the effectiveness of adding agility and perturbation techniques to standard exercise therapy compared with the standard exercise program alone for people with knee osteoarthritis. The study was conducted in the outpatient physical therapy clinic of a large university-based health center. 183 people with knee osteoarthritis, 122 women, 61 men participated. They were randomly assigned to either a group that received agility and perturbation training with standard exercise therapy or a group that received only the standard exercise program. The outcome measures were self-reported knee pain and function, self-reported knee instability, a performance-based measure of function, and global rating of change. Although both groups exhibited improvement in self-reported function and in the global rating of change at the 2-month, 6-month, and 12-month follow-up periods, there were no differences between groups on these outcomes. There was no reduction in knee pain 
or improvement in performance-based function in either group. This study had the following limitation. It is possible that more intense application of the interventions or application of the interventions to participants with knee osteoarthritis who were at greater risk for falling may have yielded additive effects of the agility and perturbation training approach. Both intervention groups exhibited improvement in self-reported function and the global rating of change. These results, however, did not support an additive effect of agility and perturbation training with standard exercise therapy in this sample of people with knee osteoarthritis. Further study is needed to determine whether there are subgroups of people who might achieve an added benefit with this approach. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences and Director of the Physical Therapy Clinical and Translational Research Center, both at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Next, Association of Biopsychosocial Factors with Degree of Slump in Sitting Posture and Self-Report of Back Pain in Adolescence, a cross-sectional study by Dr. Peter O'Sullivan, Dr. Ann Smith, Dr. Darren Beals, and Dr. Leon Straker. Conflicting evidence exists regarding relationships among sitting posture, factors that influence sitting posture, and back pain. This conflicting evidence may partially be due to the presence of multiple and overlapping factors associated with both sitting posture and back pain. The purpose of this cross-sectional study was to determine whether the degree of slump in sitting was associated with sex and other physical lifestyle or psychosocial factors. Additionally, the relationship between the report of back pain made worse by sitting and the degree of slump in sitting and other physical, lifestyle, or psychosocial factors was investigated. Almost 1,600 adolescents completed questionnaires to determine lifestyle and psychosocial profiles and the experience of back pain. Sagittal sitting posture, body mass index, and back muscle endurance were recorded. Standing posture subgroup categorization was determined. Multivariate analysis revealed that the most significant factor associated with the degree of slump in sitting was male sex, followed by non-neutral standing postures, lower perceived self-efficacy, lower back muscle endurance, greater television use, and higher body mass index. Multivariable analysis indicated poorer child behavior checklist scores were the strongest correlate of report of back pain made worse by sitting, whereas degree of slump in sitting, female sex, and back muscle endurance were more weakly related. This study had the following limitations. Causality cannot be determined from this cross-sectional study and 60% of sitting posture variation was not explained by the measured variables. Slump in sitting was associated with physical correlates as well as sex, lifestyle, and psychosocial factors, highlighting the complex multidimensional nature of usual sitting posture in adolescence. Additionally, this study demonstrated that a greater degree of slump in sitting was only weakly associated with adolescent back pain made worse by sitting after adjustment for other physical and psychosocial factors. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Peter O'Sullivan is Professor of Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy in the School of Physiotherapy 
at Curtin University of Technology and professor in the Curtin Health Innovation Research Institute, both in Perth, Australia. Next, physical therapy for chronic low back pain in North Carolina. Overuse, underuse, or misuse by Dr. Janet Freeberger, Dr. Timothy Carey, and Dr. George Holmes. There are limited population-based studies of determinants of physical therapy use for chronic low back pain and the types of treatments received by individuals who see a physical therapist. The purposes of this study were, one, to identify determinants of physical therapy use for chronic low back pain, two, to describe physical therapy treatments for chronic low back pain, and three, to compare use of treatments with current best evidence on care for this condition. This study was a cross-sectional population-based telephone survey of North Carolinians. 588 individuals with chronic low back pain who had sought care in the previous year were surveyed on their health and health care use. Bivariate and multivariable analyses were conducted to identify predisposing enabling, and need characteristics associated with physical therapy use. Descriptive analyses were conducted to determine the use of physical treatments for individuals who saw a physical therapist. Use of treatments was compared with evidence from systematic reviews. Of this sample, about 30% had seen a physical therapist in the previous year, with a mean of 16 visits. In multivariable analyses, the following were positively associated with physical therapy use, receiving workers' compensation, seeing physician specialists, and higher physical component scores on the SF-12 questionnaire. Having no health insurance was negatively associated with physical therapy use. Exercise was the most frequent treatment received, and traction was the least frequent treatment received. Some effective treatments were underutilized, whereas some ineffective treatments were overutilized. The study had the following limitations. Only one state was examined, and findings were based on patient report. Fewer than one-third of individuals with chronic low back pain saw a physical therapist. Health-related and non-health-related factors were associated with physical therapy use. Individuals who saw a physical therapist did not always receive evidence-based treatments. There are potential opportunities for improving access to and quality of physical therapy for chronic low back pain. This article will be the subject of a forthcoming discussion podcast with author Dr. Janet Freeberger and Dr. Anthony DeLito moderated by Dr. Linda Resnick. Lead author Dr. Janet Freeberger is Research Associate and Fellow at the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Health Sciences Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Next, Evaluation of a Treatment-Based Classification Algorithm for Low Back Pain, a Cross-Sectional Study by Tasha Stanton, Dr. Julie Fritz, Dr. Mark Hancock, Dr. Jane Latimer, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Benedict Wand, and Dr. Eric Parent. Several studies have investigated criteria for classifying patients with low back pain into treatment-based subgroups. A comprehensive algorithm was created to translate these criteria into a clinical decision-making guide. 
This cross-sectional observational study investigated the translation of the individual subgroup criteria into a comprehensive algorithm by studying the prevalence of patients meeting the criteria for each treatment subgroup and the reliability of the classification. 250 patients with acute or subacute low back pain were recruited from the United States and Australia to participate in the study. Trained physical therapists performed standardized assessments on all participants. The researchers used these findings to classify participants into subgroups. 31 participants were reassessed to determine inter-rater reliability of the algorithm decision. Based on individual subgroup criteria, 25.2% of the participants did not meet the criteria for any subgroup. 49.6% of the participants met the criteria for only one subgroup. And 25.2% of the participants met the criteria for more than one subgroup. The most common combination of subgroups, representing 68.4% of the participants who met the criteria for two subgroups, was manipulation and specific exercise. Reliability of the algorithm decision was moderate. This study had the following limitation. Due to a relatively small patient sample, reliability estimates are somewhat imprecise. These findings provide important clinical data to guide future research and revisions to the algorithm. The finding that 25% of the participants met the criteria for more than one subgroup has important implications for the sequencing of treatments in the algorithm. Likewise, the finding that 25% of the participants did not meet the criteria for any subgroup provides important information regarding potential revisions to the algorithm's bottom table, which guides unclear classifications. Reliability of the algorithm is sufficient for clinical use. An e-appendix accompanies this article online. Lead author Tasha Stanton is a Ph.D. student in the Musculoskeletal Division at the George Institute for Global Health and Sydney Medical School at the University of Sydney in Sydney, Australia. Predictors of Response to Physical Therapy Intervention in Patients with Primary Hip Osteoarthritis by Dr. Alexis Wright, Dr. Chad Cook, Dr. Timothy Flynn, Dr. G. David Baxter, and Dr. J. Haxby Abbott. Few studies have investigated or identified common clinical tests and measures as being associated with progression of hip osteoarthritis. Fewer still are longitudinal studies exploring prognostic variables associated with long-term outcome following physical therapy treatment. The purpose of this prognostic study was to determine a set of prognostic factors that maximize the accuracy of identifying patients with hip osteoarthritis who are likely to demonstrate a favorable response to physical therapy intervention. 91 patients with a clinical diagnosis of hip osteoarthritis were analyzed to determine which clinical measures, when clustered together, were most predictive of a favorable response to physical therapy intervention. Responders were determined based on OMERACT-ORSI response criteria, which included percent and absolute changes in pain, 
function, and global rating of change over one year. These data served as the reference standard for determining the predictive validity of baseline clinical examination variables. Using multivariate regression analyses and calculations for sensitivity, specificity, and positive and negative likelihood ratios, a cluster was identified. The following five baseline variables were retained in the final model. Unilateral hip pain, 58 years of age and older, pain of 6 out of 10 or greater on a numeric pain rating scale, 40-meter self-paced walk test time of 25.9 seconds or less, and duration of symptoms of one year or less. Failure to exhibit a condition of one of the five predictor variables decreased the post-test probability of responding favorably to physical therapy intervention from 32% to less than 1%. Having at least two out of five predictor variables at baseline increased the post-test probability of success with physical therapy intervention from 32% to 65%. Having three or more of five predictor variables increased the post-test probability of success to 99% or higher. A comparison with a control group that did not receive physical therapy further substantiated the cluster. This study had the following limitations. The small sample size and the number of variables entered into the logistic regression model may have resulted in spurious findings. This study must be validated in replication studies before it can be considered for use in clinical practice. This study completed the first step in the development of a preliminary cluster of baseline variables that identify patients with hip osteoarthritis as positive responders to physical therapy intervention. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Alexis Wright is visiting specialist in physical therapy at the University of Illinois at Chicago Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Next, fear avoidance beliefs are associated with disability in older American adults with low back pain by Dr. J. Megan Sions and Dr. Gregory Hicks. Although fear avoidance beliefs have been explored in younger adults and Spanish older adults, their relationships to measures of low back pain-related disability, overall physical health, and falling have not been investigated in older American adults. The purpose of this cross-sectional study was to examine the association of fear avoidance beliefs with self-reported disability, physical health, and falling among community-dwelling older adults with low back pain in the United States. 93 community-dwelling men and women with current low back pain were included in this analysis. Participants completed the Fear Avoidance Beliefs Questionnaire Physical Activity Subscale, the Modified Oswestry Disability Questionnaire, and the Quebec Back Pain Disability Scale were used to measure self-reported disability, and the SF36 Physical Component Summary Score was used to assess physical health. Participants provided demographic information and information regarding low back pain duration and intensity. Linear regression models were developed using the following dependent variables. Modified Oswestry Disability Questionnaire Scores, Quebec Back Pain Disability Scale Scores, and SF36 Physical Component Summary Scores. 
Logistic regression was used to determine the association between high fear avoidance beliefs and falling. For each analysis, the fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire physical activity subscale score independently explained 3% to 6% of the variance in the low back pain related disability score and 3% of the variance in the SF36 physical component summary score. For all dependent variables, the strongest contributors to explained variance were pain intensity, assistive device use, and fear avoidance beliefs questionnaire physical activity subscale score. High fear avoidance beliefs were associated with falling. The researchers warned that future investigations might seek a more diversified sample and utilize both qualitative and quantitative measures for assessing disability and physical health. Physical activity fear avoidance beliefs are independently associated with self-reported disability and overall physical health in older American adults with low back pain. High fear avoidance beliefs may warrant balance and falls assessment. This article has a bottom line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. J. Megan Sions is research physical therapist in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware in Newark, Delaware. Next, managing chronic nonspecific low back pain with a sensory motor retraining approach, an exploratory multiple baseline study of three participants by Dr. Benedict Wand, Neil O'Connell, Flavia Di Pietro, and Dr. Max Bolsara. Current approaches to the management of chronic, nonspecific low back pain have shown limited effectiveness. It appears that disruption of cortical structure and function is a feature of chronic, nonspecific low back pain, and that these changes may contribute to current treatment failures. Sensory motor retraining approaches have been shown to be effective in the management of other long-standing pain problems that are characterized by cortical dysfunction. Similar treatments may be an option for people with chronic, nonspecific low back pain. The objectives of this study were, one, to describe the effects of participation in a graded sensory motor retraining program on pain intensity, interference of pain with daily life, and self-reported disability, and two, to evaluate the safety of the program. A multiple baseline, replicated, single-case design was used for this study. Three people with disabling, chronic, nonspecific low back pain were assessed weekly during a no-treatment baseline period. Each person then participated in a graded sensory motor retraining program for a minimum of 10 weeks, during which clinical status was assessed weekly. Data collection continued weekly for one month after the end of formal treatment. Pain intensity, pain interference, and disability all were reduced, and the improvements were maintained throughout the follow-up period. No adverse reactions to treatment were reported. This study had the following limitations. The findings were preliminary and were based on a single case design. The observed improvements in clinical status may have been attributable to the effects of factors other than treatment, such as the effect of time and other nonspecific effects. Positive outcomes were reported for three participants with chronic nonspecific low back pain after the completion of a graded sensory motor retraining program. 
However, the findings are only preliminary and require replication with more robust study designs. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Benedict Wand is Associate Professor in the School of Physiotherapy at the University of Notre Dame, Australia, in Fremantle, Australia. The sit-to-stand movement, differences in performance between patients after primary total hip arthroplasty and revision total hip arthroplasty with acetabular bone impaction grafting. By Dr. Miranda Boonstra, Dr. B. Vim Schurz, and Dr. Nico Ferndenschot. Little is known about the functional performance of patients after revision total hip arthroplasty with major acetabular bone impaction grafting. In general, these patients are assumed to perform worse due to a more advanced stage of periarticular tissue degeneration and multiple surgeries compared with patients with primary total hip arthroplasty. The main purpose of this study was to quantify the differences in performance of the sit-to-stand movement between patients with primary total hip arthroplasty and patients with revision total hip arthroplasty. In this study, the sit-to-stand movement was analyzed kinematically and kinetically. Ten patients after primary total hip arthroplasty and ten patients after revision total hip arthroplasty with acetabular bone impaction grafting were compared using the three rising parameters of angular extension velocity of the knee, angular extension velocity of the hip, and loading symmetry ratio. The patients with revision total hip arthroplasty performed the sit-to-stand movement comparably to the patients with primary total hip arthroplasty. There were no differences in knee and hip velocity or leg asymmetry during rising. The study has the following limitations. The study focused only on kinetic and kinematic aspects, and only patients who were satisfied with their total hip arthroplasty were involved. This study showed that patients after a revision total hip arthroplasty with acetabular bone impaction grafting and cement did not perform the sit-to-stand movement differently, either kinematically or kinetically, compared with patients with a primary total hip arthroplasty. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Miranda Boonstra is scientific researcher in the Orthopedic Research Laboratory at Radboud University Nijmegen Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. Next, reliability of outcome measures for people with lower limb amputations, distinguishing true change from statistical error by Dr. Linda Resnick and Matthew Borgia. Use of outcome measures to examine outcomes of amputation is complicated by a number of factors, including ease of administration and lack of scientific evidence to guide selection and interpretation. The purposes of this multi-site study were, one, to estimate test-retest reliability of the following measures, a modified version of the prosthetic evaluation questionnaire, scales of a version of the SF36 questionnaire adapted for the veteran population, the orthotics and prosthetics users survey, the patient-specific functional scale, the two-minute walk test, the six-minute walk test, the timed up-and-go test, and the amputee mobility predictor. Two, 
to calculate minimal detectable change of each measure, and 3. to conduct item analysis of the modified prosthetic evaluation questionnaire. 44 patients with unilateral lower limb amputation participated. Participants were tested twice within one week. The researchers calculated test-retest reliability of each measure using intra-class correlation coefficient, estimated standard error of the measurement, and minimal detectable change, and assessed scale score distribution. The study demonstrated strong test-retest reliability scores of performance measures, suggesting that these measures are good choices for evaluation of people with lower limb amputation. Reliability of prosthetic evaluation questionnaire subscales was comparable to that reported in the literature. This study has the following limitation. It examined only statistically measurable differences and did not evaluate whether changes in scores were clinically important. Minimal detectable change scores can be used to determine whether change in test scores exceeds measurement error associated with day-to-day -day variation. This is the first study to present test-retest reliability data on the self-reported orthotics and prosthetics users' survey scales, the patient-specific functional scale in people with lower limb amputations, and a new, easier-to-use scoring mechanism for the prosthetic evaluation questionnaire. Lead author Dr. Linda Resnick is research health scientist at Providence VA Medical Center and is associate professor research in the Department of Community Health at Brown University, both in Providence, Rhode Island. Next, validation of the treadmill six-minute walk test in people following cardiac surgery by Luigi Olper, Paolo Cervi, Francesca De Santi, Dr. Carlo Meloni, and Roberto Gatti. The six-minute walk test often is used to measure exercise capacity in people with cardiopulmonary diseases, but it has some disadvantages. The six-minute walk test administered on a treadmill requires less physical space and allows for easier monitoring of vital parameters than the traditional six-minute walk test. The objectives of this study were, one, to analyze the validity of the treadmill six-minute walk test in people who underwent cardiac surgery. Two, to compare the reliability, responsiveness, and people's tolerance of the treadmill six-minute walk test with those of the traditional six-minute walk test, and three, to evaluate the agreement between the two tests. Twenty-six participants who were inpatients were assessed before a two-week rehabilitation program. Twenty of them also were assessed after rehabilitation. All participants performed three trials of the treadmill six-minute walk test and three trials of the traditional six-minute walk test that were randomly assigned on two consecutive days. The Pearson R correlation coefficient between the treadmill six-minute walk test and the traditional six-minute walk test indicated satisfactory concurrent validity. The treadmill six-minute walk test was as well tolerated as the traditional six-minute walk test. The treadmill six-minute walk test produced reproducible results after two practice tests, whereas the traditional six-minute walk test did so after only one practice test. Both tests showed high test-retest reliability. The treadmill six-minute walk test showed better responsiveness than the traditional six-minute walk test. 
The distance covered during the treadmill six-minute walk test was significantly shorter before rehabilitation, but not after rehabilitation. This study had the following limitation. A crossover randomized procedure could have improved the reliability of the treadmill six-minute walk test in people who performed the traditional six-minute walk test first. The treadmill six-minute walk test appears to be an instrument with adequate concurrent validity and to be tolerable, reliable, and responsive for the evaluation of exercise capacity in people after cardiac surgery, even though it is not interchangeable with the traditional six-minute walk test. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Luigi Olper is a physical therapist in the rehabilitation department at San Raffaele Hospital in Milan, Italy. Last this month, Validity and Reliability of Two Abbreviated Versions of the Gross Motor Function Measure by Laura Brunton and Dr. Doreen Bartlett. The gold standard for measuring gross motor function in children with cerebral palsy is the 66-item Gross Motor Function Measure, or GMFM-66. The purpose of this study was to estimate the validity and reliability of two abbreviated versions of the GMFM-66, One version involves an item-set approach, and the other version involves a basal and ceiling approach. This was a measurement study comprising concurrent validity, comparability, and test-retest reliability components. The study participants were 26 children who were 2 to 6 years of age and had cerebral palsy across all gross motor function classification system levels. In the first session, both abbreviated versions were administered by two independent raters. Next, the full GMFM-66 was administered. In the second session, only the abbreviated versions were administered by the same raters. Concurrent validity, comparability of versions, and test-retest reliability were determined with intraclass correlation coefficients. Both versions demonstrated high levels of validity, reflecting associations with the GMFM-66. Both versions also were shown to be highly reliable. A smaller-than-expected sample was recruited for this study and may be a potential limitation of the study. Both versions of the GMFM-66 can be used in clinical practice or research. However, the GMFM-66 with the basal and ceiling approach is recommended as the preferred abbreviated version. Lead author Laura Brunton is a Ph.D. student in the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences program, Faculty of Health Sciences, at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.